0: Hello and welcome to Contour Podcasts. I'm Joshua Kraker, the Chief Product Officer,
1: and I'm Carl Wagner, the CEO of Contour.
0: One of the hottest topics in trade today is about fraud prevention. You know, especially with some of the recent cases uh, involving energy trading companies in Singapore. Now, there's lots of things that a digital network uh, can can do in terms of solving problems in business and uh, reducing administration, driving trade growth, but. There's also more that digitization of trade can do, and we have two really excellent guests here today to talk to us more about you know, the future of trade, the future of trade digitization, and what's going to be happening in its impact to financial crime compliance. Um, so here we are, two experts. We have Koshika Ruwangala uh, He's the Global Head of Financial Crime Compliance uh, for Global Trade and Receivables Finance at HSBC. Welcome, Koshika. Thanks, Josh. And- And we have Sebastian Villan, He's the Head of Risk and Compliance Data at Lloyd's List Intelligence. Thank you, Josh. Excited to be here. Thank you both. Um, So I guess the first thing that I think of when we're talking about digitization uh, is really around freshness of data. So instead of thinking about, you know, you're gathering all this paper, you're entering it into your system, and then at some point later down the road, you're going to go see if anything happened that was amiss. When you have a digital platform like contour like anything where you're getting data in real time i'm very interested to see if that makes a difference so maybe seb i'll ask this question to you does the freshness of data help to reduce the risks of fraud uh, trade-based money laundering sanctions evasion etc
2: thanks josh yeah i think to the first part of the question on the on the freshness of data uh yes i think having the most up-to-date and and verified data so it makes it easier to spot signs of potential fraud or sanction evasion, and, and to reduce the risk of it. So if, if you look at shipping changes to a vessel flag or, or ownership or classification society can be completely legitimate. But frequent changes or changes from a reputable flag state to a more opaque flag state where there's less stringent checks can also be an indication that the principles behind this vessel are trying to cover their tracks. Um, in some cases, a vessel might have had its flag withdrawn by the flag state, or its class suspended at the time of a new cargo being loaded. So the timeliness of this type of data is, particularly this dynamic data, is very important. But I think um, in addition to this timeliness of dynamic data, another important factor is, is the completeness or so the granularity of the data that you're viewing, uh, and, and also your understanding of it. So. When you're looking at a set of, of cargo documents or a bill of lading or a transaction between two entities, do you have the information and the tools needed to critically assess and verify the documents in front of you? Can you cross-check that the cargo has been loaded at a specific port mentioned in the bill of lading? And does this match, uh, match the sailing route of the vessel, or are well, there any other inconsistencies? So. I think that both timely, verified and complete data are, are all key to protecting yourself from, from that risk of fraud.
0: Okay, so so maybe, Kushika, I'd love to get your opinion. Maybe we can back up a little bit as well for our listeners who may not be all that familiar with all of this type of data with flags and things like that. So, of course, we know trade finance is, is when banks get involved to help facilitate global trade to provide risk mitigation, working capital facilitation. but. Getting a bank involved in any transaction brings with it uh, a degree of risk. Uh, so, what are banks looking out for when it, when we when we talk about uh, fraud or or sanctions evasion or uh, anything else? I, I'd love to hear about that from your perspective. Sure, I, th- I think, Josh. I think the starting
3: point for us should be that um, when we do documentary trade as opposed to I think open account trade, um, the the view the bank has of of the underlying trade transaction is, is a lot greater. then then let's say when an open account trade happens, right? Now, this is what fundamentally allows the banks to do financing and the banks to do risk mitigation for parties at both ends of this transaction. But it also means that the bank needs to understand the activity of the customer, of the transaction, of the trade, end-to-end, if it's to do its job properly, right? So, you know, the less opaque the transaction, uh, the less conservative a bank or a financial institution is going to be in providing risk mitigation or provide financing in relation to that activity. So, you know, this, this ability to, to share data, to have data is fundamental to documentary trade financing, which, you know, banks are involved in. Now, as you said, banks gather a lot of data. Right in in HSBC in particular, the amount of data that banks have to sift through to understand, you know, are there risks involved in this transaction is is huge, right? Now, take as an example, um, we deal with more than half a million um, sanctions alerts uh, a month. What I mean by sanctions alerts is not all of this is true. Most of them are false positives right? Almost 99 plus percent of it is false positives. But what that shows you is that there is so much of data that needs to be sifted through to understand what's going wrong, You know what's not perfect, what are we comfortable getting involved in and, and, and not, right? Now, the problem for financial institutions have always been is, how do I, one, use the information uh, that is available in these documents to manage risk? Now, sometimes it feels like finding a needle in a haystack, right? So how do I make this process a lot more efficient and how do I ensure that I actually end up getting the right information, to your point that you mentioned earlier, on a timely manner that allows me to risk mitigate? Because it's it's kind of pointless if I've got into a transaction, I've done that transaction, I get to know something afterwards, right? I can probably make a decision as to whether I want to continue to bank this customer or not, but you know, as, as with the case of a number of these frauds, the frauds happened. The, the money is lost the, the industry is compromised the confidence in the sector is lost so i think that you know to Sebastian's point as well the right information at, at the right time is essential if we are to to do this well and I'm, you know i'm sure as, as we get through this conversation we'll we'll touch on a number of topics such as you know digitization of of these pieces of information how that helps and so on and we can expand that a bit right but i think you know let's just take one more example before we move on right so you know Take sanctions risk as an example. Sanctions list get updated sometimes on a daily basis, and we will not be we will not be sorry. We could be entering into a transaction um, where there is a sanctions nexus in that transaction if the information that we're dealing with is outdated. Right now, the problem with that is. The financial institution halfway through that transaction may identify listen we can't do this anymore so the financial institution in itself is in a very complicated position but think of the customer at, at this transaction right so they may have either paid for goods or they may have shipped goods and they're looking for financing from a financial institution and a lot of banks will not touch this at all so they're going to be in a very compromised position as well right so that up-to-date information both from an FI's perspective as well as from a corporate's perspective, is essential if both of these parties are to meet their legitimate interests in these transactions.
0: Okay, so if you have an exporter, somebody who's sold something to an overseas buyer, even domestically, um, if if the bank has financed that transaction, they want to get paid from the bank. So they're going to submit a bunch of documents uh, to the bank to get paid. Now, is that all the data that we're getting since we're talking about data or what role then does you know, Seb? You can answer this as well. After, in terms of what 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 role does like Lloyd's List play in adding to that data? Are they adding more data, or is it more validating the data that's been presented by the corporate? Um,
3: so I, I think let me jump in and Sebastian can can add here. Um, so I, I think we started off this this industry. I think Josh maybe ten years ago where all the information that we need to get comes from a single source or two parties. So either the importer or the exporter collates a lot of this information sends across to the banks, right? Um, I think we've learned over time that that could result in collusion, people forging documents, right? And essentially financial crime risk could take place. So over a period of time, the industry had started using a lot more external, one, as, as a direct source, and secondly, sometimes, to validate information that is there. Now, one of the things that um, some of the financial institutions are doing nowadays, um, a key theme from OFAC, is um, transfer of cargo mid-sea from one vessel to the other, right? So, um, in order to manage this, system, one of the things that financial institutions are doing is working very closely with the likes of Lloyds, with all the shipping companies to understand what are these vessels? that are doing this? How do we build that into our risk management process? Right, And, and how do we use that? We, of course, also use verification as well, right? So you know, if, there's a, if there's a bill of lading that is submitted, which says X vessel is being used for this transaction, now capabilities are such that that information is automatically linked to, a, um, you know, like a Lloyd's or, or a search's website, and the systems integrate and check whether this is an actual voyage, where is it going, Is what's in the information and the bill of lading is accurate and so
0: on. So all of these things kind of happen now over the years that we've we've matured on this. So Sebastian, I'm sort of familiar with the data that a, a exporter might present, right? They're going to present an invoice, a bill of lading that they've gotten from the carrier, maybe a packing list, but what other sources of data are you out there gathering and then providing to the banks as part of your service?
3: So the sources that we look
2: at, it's uh as Kashika said, but also from the from the guidance that we have from from the sanction authorities from, from OFAC, OFSI, a lot of this is underpinned by the vessel tracks and the movements and seeing where a vessel might have gone dark. So the the comprehensive picture of having AIS, so automatic identification system signals on, on the vessels, that's critical. Seeing whether a vessel has been at the point where it's said that a trade has has gone on. What we're seeing in, uh, in Venezuela, for instance, with, with the with the um, breach of, of uh, OFAC's sanctions against Venezuela, is that a lot of vessels are going dark between Venezuela and, and Aruba. You know that there are ships that are meeting them midway, doing a ship-to-ship transfer. In some cases, these vessels keep their areas on, but they're met by a dark vessel. And then being able to track whether a cargo has been loaded in that period is, is where that critical point in uh, comes in and being able to, to, to cross-check that. Um, and as Kirshika said, with regards to sanctions, the, the job of the trade finance community and other industries connected to, to maritime is certainly not made any easier by the sanction authorities. What we're seeing is that the sanction authorities are not good at updating their records. Uh, So, after an entity or a a vessel has been sanctioned, they will not generally go back and update this with the new aliases or the new names or the new changes. Nor will they outline the associated companies that the sanctioned company might be transacting with, uh, which again leads to subsequent sanction potential sanction breaches. So. A lot of this work is very much left to be pieced together by each company's compliance checks, so from HSBC or anyone else in the industry, as well as us well at Intelligence, where we're looking at the ownership of vessels. Trying to piece this together is is a is a massive job, um, but it is critical to make sure that we are actually following that guidance as well.
0: Okay, so so Carl, I, I'd be keen to know from your perspective in terms of looking at trade finance platforms like Contour. How how is do you see this changing in the future in terms of people who used to be gathering paper documents and and sort of mailing them to a bank uh, versus doing digital presentation? Well, uh, how do you see that making a difference?
1: Oh, I mean, obviously, I'm talking about you know this a multitude of information that we're all trying to. I mean, a it's gathering the information get, getting in a digital manner, right? That's the first thing. Then it's getting a fresh update of it. But then I think the the key point of any platform that can pull this information together is the collaboration, the cross matching of this information, right? Because anyone, I mean, anyone who wants to, a, a bad player can try to fake one set of information, or but when you have you know when you have other information that's that's matching it, other checking points, right? As as Seb said, right? You know it that that ship was fine, but there was another ship that came into it and, and start doing that analysis, right? So I think, you know, any platform that can pull a, a, it's a journey, right? To bring all this digital data, you know, first it's, first it's getting it digital just on PDFs, then it's getting it into a structured data format that we can actually start running analysis against, right? And uh, again, working with partners that can do that will be very powerful, right? Because you can't, you know, each a bad player can only control so many different, you know, aspects of that information. So many different feeds, right? There'll be other feeds that will be legitimate. And and a platform that can pull it together, right, and work with partners and then can analyze it right in Conto, We're pulling the letter of credit together. That all the information letter of credit could be enough, but there there's probably more that needs. Again, sanction checking is done sort of outside of that specific letter of credit process, but it has to be done. So anything you do can pull these multitude of information feeds together and, and partners that, that we work with that can do that will, will be very powerful, right because I think they can we can analyze things better, they can analyze things in, in a much more robust fashion, right and, and not just count on one, one document that uh, in the past the bank, again, the bank in letter of credit looks at a, an, a piece of paper and if it looks real, that's good enough from a legal perspective. Right. But then, you know, it, it's they don't have to prove that that piece of paper is real. They have to assume that it's real. But this is the new world where we have the data to confirm things.
0: Mm. So so collaboration again to save the day.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. As always.
0: Okay, so I, I guess what, what we have now, then we have, we have a lot, lot of collaboration happening. We have different sources of data. We have different people who are presenting it, checking it, validating it, uh, but this only works if everyone plays along and plays nicely. Um, are all the participants still sort of willing to, to share this data? I'd be uh, curious for, for your view, Sebastian, on this and are there any sort of major trends that you're seeing happening in collecting all this data?
2: Yeah, definitely. It's a really interesting question. So we work with over 3,000 data sources. That includes uh, satellite providers, classification societies, uh, protection and indemnity clubs, flag states, uh, port state control authorities and, and more. And there there certainly is a willingness within the industry to, to share information. But there are still more reluctant parties within these groups and there are uh, certainly some issues. Uh, I think one of the key issues is not only the the willingness of sharing data, but it's also the way that these institutions, the way that their data is structured. So many of the companies that hold quite significant volumes of data, like flag states and classification societies, port state controls, everything that is part of, of that verification checks that trade finance banks would need to go through, they don't really have very good data structures. Uh, and it's the same with the International Maritime Organization. They have their global integrated shipping information system tool. And it's it's quite outdated. Uh, the way that it's structured, the way that you check information is quite clunky. Um, and in many cases, again, the data that's received from, from these sources is only partial. So it needs to then be cleaned and, and verified. Uh, so and something that is missing might be held by other industry actors. Uh, so. Being able to combine that together is, is very uh, critical as well. Um, and I think another issue that we're seeing in the industry is that uh, the clients, of course, are many of these industry partners. So flag states, uh, classification societies, PI clubs, uh, are the ones that the data shines a light on. So the ship owners, the ship operators, and the charterers, uh, And they might then object to certain of these vessel characteristics being being shared with, with other parties. So that's that's another issue that we're finding can be can be difficult in, in this area. Um, that said, I do want to stress, though, that there are obviously numerous ship owners and operators out there that are also at the forefront of transparency. They're working closely with ship owners associations at creating more transparency, uh, but a lot of that is usually within that community. So it's quite, again, quite shielded uh, and close to that group.
0: Okay. Well, I think some common themes are definitely coming out from these uh, whole series of podcasts in terms of the need for collaboration, people to work together, the need for standardization to make sure that we can make sense of that data and and put it to use in an effective way. But I guess the other thing is is whose responsibility should this be? You know, Kashika, I'd be keen to get your view as well. So, of course, banks have a huge responsibility whenever you're involved in a transaction. Of course, you don't want it to be involved with any sort of Uh, sanctions breaches or anything else and because you're lending money there's always the potential uh, of someone trying to get that loan fraudulently but um how about the corporates you know from your perspective is that something that they can be involved in this more can they be pushing standards can they be pushing compliance saying they're only going to be booking ships uh who are on the forefront of sort of uh being transparent et cetera? or uh is, is that not quite happening yet so,
3: I think, Josh, firstly, I think it's a very interesting question, right? Um, see, financial institutions are highly regulated, right? And when something goes wrong, these are the institutions that are in the receiving end of huge fines, uh, regulatory enforcements, and so on. But I think, you know, those are the headline items, right? My view is that you know, when a financial institution is impacted, is fine, there's a massive indirect trickle effect that happens on everyone in the industry, right? So let's let's take an example. Um, Ten years ago, a lot of the regulators started laying very heavy fines on on the bank, saying your your CDD standard, your customer due diligence standard, was not robust enough, right? So as a result, um, you know there's there's money laundering happening. Right, there is financial crime. There's sanctions evasion that's happening. So, um, the sector went and introduced, you know, a very robust customer due diligence process. Now, some banks started doing this. Some of the early banks who got fined started doing this very early. Customers then had the ability to shop around, go into a financial institution that didn't have such extensive requirements, right? But you know, 10 years on, everyone is in that standard. The CDD requirements are quite heavy, right? Now, there was a there was a fine on the bank, but the, the impact of that has been is in the entire industry who's is, who's is using banking services, right, or the financial services, and they impacted more broadly um, because there are stricter requirements. Financial institutions need to understand more about understand transparency with regards to a customer. So you know I think there isn't a single party who's who's responsible for making this work, right? Um, and I think this is where. Contours capability, you know, really comes in. It's it's about bringing this network together and allowing the end end to end to be seen, right? If you have end to end visibility, then a lot of the institutions who are involved in these transactions, with to some degree of certainty, say, listen, I know what's going on here. I I see the end to end. I see all the parties involved. I see where the goods are originating from where they're actually going, right? I can see there are legitimate transactions that are going, and then that builds confidence in the system. That then gives the ability for all of these parties involved, one, for financial institutions to meet their regulatory commitments, for the regulators to, to ensure that there is no financial crime happening in this, in this industry, right? And then for the, the corporates who are using this, to have far more ready access to, to finance, right? So let's take another example. On the back of a number of the frauds that happened in the Asia Pacific region in 2020, with the impact on the energy sector, with the oil prices crashing, right? One of the things that happened was the bank's credit appetite towards this industry, towards certain sectors, towards certain countries, was hugely reduced. So the banks are not willing to lend as much, right? Now the impact of this is companies that utilize these credit facilities are not able to build their business, are not able to expand. Right now, when you create this transparency, this comes together. And if you realize, you know, there are, it's in the regulator's interest to, to do this, that as well. So they're bringing a lot of these parties for once together into the same platform saying, we need to have cross sharing of information. We need to have connectivity that ensures that this whole sector can flourish. Um, As opposed to these incidents, then having direct impact on certain parties, and then having trickle effects, indirect impacts on the others.
0: Okay, no, I think that that that's great, and that's a big, it's a big shift, of course. Um, So I don't know, we're not going to solve this issue today in today's call, but maybe, maybe the the five of us can can make a dent. So how about we enforce um, a few mandatory fields? How about we say uh, you can only have access to trade finance if you had these fields when you log into Contour to make a presentation. Um, is, is this what we need to start thinking about in terms of making sure we're getting the right data uh, to do the cross matches, to do it in an automatic and efficient way? Uh, or is there there's some other ways that we can sort of make this uh, more efficient and more uh, challenging to overcome? So Sorry, Josh, is that for me? Uh, yeah,
3: whoever wants to take that one. Sure, you can go ahead. Uh. Let me. I think I walked into it, but let let, let let me make a start, and I'm sure the others will have lots of interesting ideas to add as well. Um, so, I I think Josh. I think to your initial question, absolutely right. So, um, the banks. You know, one of the I mean I, I touched on this point earlier. One one of the problems that we have is that a lot of this information. Is not in digital format, so it's it's in a it's in a document which then subsequently gets scanned, which then someone needs to sit in front of the computer and and manually capture into screens, which then you start processing and you use for, you know, processing the transaction and financial crime risk management. Now, if you can digitize that right at the point of recording, that's a massive advantage because it does two things, right? One, when you have a process where huge amounts of data needs to be captured from paper into digital there's always going to be the pressure from the business saying this is how much of resources do i actually put into data capture right so what is the most essential stuff that i need to for financial crime risk management what's the stuff that i don't need to right so as a result a portion of data gets left behind now the moment you start digitizing this you have more data and more data means or you have a better ability to to analyze this information and then and, and let's look at the second part of this, right? One of the biggest problems I have today is the fact that yes, people do go and capture this data, but there are data data capture errors, right? Now, sanction screening as a concept, as, as as a functionality, works on right information being captured. Otherwise, the algorithms are are not that great, right? So that does that, and you know. These days the banks are leveraging lots of analytics capabilities to analyze this data. Now, when I process a transaction, on that immediate transaction, there's only a certain element of risk mitigation that I can do. However, when I begin to see patterns of transaction between my customers and their counterparties, I get to see broader pictures of are there U-turns? Are there trading between social linked parties? All of this becomes possible uh, when data. More data is captured, and the data is available for, for analysis. And I think you know, one going back to answer your original question, yes, you know, getting this information captured is helpful. Um, part of me also says, listen, I don't want all of this data coming from a single source, right? I'd rather have the shipping information coming from the from the shipping company, which allows me to cross match rather than everything coming from a from a single source and and checking it. Right? So I think there's advantages to both aspects here and I think we need to be smart about how we go about using that and when we use that.
0: How about Lloyd Sebastian? Are you, are you looking at taking data from a lot of different sources, bringing it together, maybe giving a, a green check mark, or well, what is the thinking on, on getting data from different parties and, or maybe mandating it before you give a report to uh, any interested party?
2: So I think for, um, if you look at it from, from the trade finance perspective, being able to have effectively a, a log audit, log that you can follow uh, with what are the checks that's been done against this vessel or, or this trade, what are the markers, what might have happened in that period of that transaction, uh, what are the elements in dynamic data points that might have been uh, changed or, or that are exposed to fraud, all of that is very, very important Uh, because what we've seen, we've been working with a lot of banks on this, and a lot of the banks that we've spoken with, they're sort of moving down the route of automating processes, trying to reduce the burden of the compliance teams, uh, while still maintaining that sort of four eyes principle, which is very important within any uh, compliance checks as well. So there's, of course, that balance between the efficiency and that need for a clear audit trail. Um, And then, of course, you have the added aspect that, was mentioned that you are looking at maybe specifically the maritime industry, which is very niche, but those who are checking those transactions are generally not experts in, in the area. And I think this is where digital networks, uh, as as well as market specialists, come in to give that uh, balanced view. And I agree with kashika that there is, uh, there is not necessarily one solution that fits all. You need to have several input coming in together a lot of different data sets that are then evaluated uh, and critically assessed. And I think key to this is you can do uh, a lot with digitization, automation, but the element of human verification, you can't get away from it. Human verification of the data and and going through that from receipt of data until that data is then aggregated and put out into uh, a combination of more dynamic and uh, relational data sets is extremely important um so we can't really move away from
0: that okay no that's good so so maybe to wrap up this section uh carl so what difference do you think it's going to make having all of this on a decentralized network you know we've spoken about some of the challenges people have sharing data the needs for collaboration the needs for standardization how do you think this sort of emergence of these new technologies is going to make a difference
1: no it's going to make a massive difference right because again when you talk about information you talk about who who owns the information right and the bigger data set you have the more information you know who who gets to own that what country what country does it sit in right and as information data gets easier and easier to move around uh, you know countries governments are getting more and more worried about their data leaving their country or being shared to parties they don't want to share it to so, I mean, distributed ledger, you know, is, is, a, is a perfect technology now to enable a much larger data set, but partition it to the countries, you know, to follow whatever governmental regulations or geopolitical issues there are. Um, otherwise, there's no, it'd be very hard to, to, to build another Swift again today, right? Because that was built in the 70s you know, why should the center of, of, of SWIFT be one country or another, right? Um, you know, something like that. A centralized database is harder and harder to justify or harder and harder. And it's not, I mean, it's a more efficient way of doing it. I mean, distributed ledger is just an, an more elegant and more complicated, but it fits the needs now of segregating data because of geopolitical issues. And again, we're talking about a bigger data set. So how do we get a bigger data set? It's not by putting it in all in one database, right? It's having these databases communicate.
0: Okay, no, I think that's that's a very exciting development in this field, but um, I I really want to get back to a few points that I think both of you or a few of you have made. Uh, You've used some some terminology that may not be well known to to some of our listeners, U-turns and uh, related parties. And maybe we should talk a little bit about what is trade fraud? Uh, what are we worried about? And, and uh, if we can define it a little bit, maybe we can start to think about how can we make sure that these things don't happen? Um, you know, we, I think it was referenced earlier, some of the, the well-known cases in 2020 where uh, in the energy space, uh, the price uh, drop caused some, some otherwise legitimate companies to do some illegitimate things. But can we define this maybe? I don't know if you want to go first, Koshika or Seb, in terms of what is trade fraud? Well, what are these companies doing?
3: Sorry, i was just i was on mute uh, um so i think you know fraud for me um josh is i think you know broadly two categories right what i call first party fraud and what i call third party fraud right um, third party fraud is where you know an unrelated party is you know trying to get an in and trying to make some money out of it now this can be through compromise of channels you know, understanding that there's a transaction taking place, you know, stealing certain amount of data and then on the back of that, getting some money out. Um, the, the other big thing is, is first party fraud, which is where, you know, like you said, a legitimate party, right, who by circumstance is driven towards doing illegitimate practices. And I think we saw quite a bit of this in, in 2020 because of the economic impact all across the world, particularly in the, in the energy sector right so um you know so you know we, uh, the controls that you need to implement to to identify these these two are, are are sometimes slightly different because you you all of a sudden have a customer who's been doing good business for a number of years you know build up their company find themselves in a very compromised position financially and then decide you know, i'm going to you know try and change a few invoices here and there I'm going to say there is certain trade taking place when there isn't any trade taking place. Or I'm going to sell the same load of goods to one party as, as well as the other. Or I'm going to use you know, some of this as collateral for, for two parties involved and, and pick financing as a result of that. So that for me becomes very difficult unless you have very close observations that are going on with regards to this activity to identify. So I think you know defining broadly for me, it's it, it's these two right now, I'm sure. There's a lot more as well. And, you know, we can break this down into, into far more detail. But I think, you know, first party and, and third party fraud is where I broadly break this down.
0: Okay, I think that's interesting. Maybe Carl i will give you the first one on, on third party in terms of, uh, it's another blockchain question, but I think people might be interested. How do we make sure that the third parties who are not involved in the transactions do not have access to the transactions and not try to represent somebody who they aren't? Um, does permission blockchain help us in there?
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. So again, there's there's public blockchain and permission blockchain, and and uh, again, as we look to managing commercial interests, permission blockchain, where you know the players in the system, you've identified them, um, is is the first way to ring fence and keep that data safe. Um, the the second point would be again how you manage that data, right? And in you know in different types of um of 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 blockchain distributed ledger systems some is a still a broadcast a traditional blockchain a broadcast a method of consensus <clears throat> and then some others like corda is where you're only sharing only the parties in that specific transaction are sharing data so if there's four parties there's there's a thousand there's a thousand members on the network but only four are involved in transaction only four should see the transaction that they're they're specifically working on, right? So that's another level. First, it's the permission layer; you can't be a player unless you're you you're you're you've been verified um, into coming to the system. The second is let's not share information on a broadcast level, right? Because even if you encrypt it, there always may be a way maybe to decrypt it.
0: Okay, so Sebastian, I'll give you the the next question because if we're if we're able to sort of keep the bad actors, if you will, out of the system, then we go back to thinking about people who were normally, you know, good clients, and they've gone through all the, the KYC processes, et cetera, of the banks. But something has happened where it's led them to to go down a path trading with a the country they wouldn't otherwise, or are trying to, to do uh, some sort of fraud. So it becomes less at a company level, more at a transaction level. Um, so this is really, I guess, what, what your company does. And I'd be curious for your perspective in terms of, how can we stop it, one, and two, whose responsibility is it, you know, both to stop it and if something goes wrong, to sort of, you know, pay for it, if you will.
2: Mm, absolutely. Well, you you can't, um, as Kashika said, in terms of how we're looking at, at fraud at, at any level, if it's within an organization or from external parties, you can't eliminate it completely. But it is exactly about that. What steps can you do to make sure that you're better protected? I think that's that's the core of this uh obviously within Contour, you were talking a lot about that what can you do with standardization of fields and the information that's required uh to both make processes more efficient but also making sure that there is uh, a lot more uh transparency and checks and balances in in the in the, in the in the in the in this area so uh i think within the within the community there is some movement here uh, when you're talking about sort of bills of of lading, the, uh, particularly in the container shipping business, there are moves here towards uh, looking at standardisation of electronic bills of lading, for in- instance. Uh, there's some support here from the International Chamber of Commerce. Uh, but of course, that's only one subsector of, of the group. We need to have that. We need to have electronic solution for all the shipping sectors and for the bunker companies and the traders, so not just containerized trade. Um, and I wanted to pick up on something that, that you mentioned, Carl, earlier, in terms of uh, sort of the changes in geopolitics and what we're seeing here. I mean, Singapore has a very comprehensive public registry, but as we've seen with the recent bankruptcy scandals as well, there are ways of avoiding publications of financial filings. And in some jurisdictions, they're only these are only accessible by law enforcement and, and, and tax authorities, which against... Again, sort of reduces this level of transparency. Uh, there's been a lot of talk in the in the industry about beneficial ownership registers, for instance, but that's not really moving forward. And then you have these political shifts, like like Brexit. So in in December, as a very niche example, but in in December, the Swedish company register announced that due to Brexit, uh, they would not be allowed to transfer information from the Swedish insolvency register to any country that's not a member of the EU or the EEA, which goes against what their counterparts in Norway and Denmark are doing. But it's a very odd move because insolvency data, for instance, can also help detect whether a company is using the identity of a defunct company to, to carry out illicit trade. Uh, so all of these things come together, and that's where we, system intelligence. Our uh, role is to just make that more transparent, so that the companies like agency or others can have actionable insight. Being able to look at a transaction, follow it from from step to step, and see actually is is the asset or, or the the counterparts that we're expecting from the bill of lading is that what uh, is reflected on this system as well, and then being able to query that.
0: OK, no, I think that that's good, and I think you've sort of answered a little bit my, my next question, and maybe this can be uh, the closing one. I'll, I'll give each of you a chance to answer. So what does the future look like of uh, fraud mitigation? I guess we can't say we're ever going to eliminate it, but we can try to align the interests so that it doesn't become profitable anymore and that becomes harder and harder. What does that look like? And, and more importantly, I guess, what do we need to get there? What, what are some sort of concrete uh, short term steps that we can all take together as an industry? Uh, to to improve this area, um, maybe Koshika you can go first, and uh, Sebastian, and then Carl. So I, th-
3: I think, um, Josh, I think the, the you know one one of the ways that you that you, you look to resolve this, and I think you know some of the regulators in these countries where these frauds have happened are, are taking first steps in doing this is to try and you know bring this information you know do cross sharing of information as much as you can right so you know, if, if a party in is involved is in is, is doing double financing right or using collateral in, in in two places you have to have some level of in, information sharing that enables the actors in this process to understand what's going on and i think you know whether that is through a register that the regulator creates, or whether it's through an industry-led technology capability where all of these parties are brought in and and there is transparency through distributed ledger or any one of this. I think this is where we can really crack this, right? Otherwise, it becomes very difficult because some of these things, you know, a company's financial position sometimes change um swiftly, and then you know there, there are hundreds and thousands of customers that financial institutions bank as well so it becomes very difficult to keep you know eye on these all the time with every party involved right so i think you know this cross sharing information is definitely going to be a key starting point um, to actually to land this because if, if we don't land this right and if there are frauds that happen to the extent that it has happened, for example, in 2020, it, I think, erodes confidence in the the entire sector. It it erodes, you know, financial institutions' ability to finance certain sectors as well, right? So I think creating bigger networks where we, where people, all parties involved here can see the end-to-end and all interested parties are contributing to to that cause is where I think the future of resolving this is, is going to
0: be. Great, Sebastian. Any closing thoughts from you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we've been talking about it a lot on this, uh, in, this in this session as well. But it, it is about that transparency piece. We can't get away from it, uh, and there is so much more that needs to be done. That from all industry partners, and as part of that as well is is I think more more flexibility in data exchanges, as Kashika said. More, what, what can you do with? with APIs, sort of be, for everyone to be more nimble in the way that we are managing and sharing data, I think is very important. Um, I think uh, as you're doing at Control, more standardization, focus on standardization and, and implementation of electronic data systems are, are critical. And I don't think there is really a good excuse for not moving forward with that. I think a couple of, a decade ago, yes, but now in the sort of, connected world that we're living where everyone are sitting there with their smartphones and you would have 3 g four g 5g in in most of the ports around the world, for instance from, from a shipping perspective, there isn't any reason why some of this can't become digitized at the very at the very basic level and moving that forward. so it is a joint effort but I think more is is needed also from from the leading body if you're looking at from from my perspective from shipping industry, uh, more needs to be done from from the level of the international maritime organization and getting governments the nation states together to get these uh, to force through some of these changes that we want to see within the industry. Um, they're doing a lot of the international maritime organization doing fantastic work in terms of looking at shipping from from an environmental perspective where are we going to be in 2050 uh, which is fantastic but much more needs to be done on on the more counterparty risks. Uh, the elimination of 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 fraud in these different aspects and um and and better support for the industry to do that because i also think that if um if you if you reduce that if you have more transparency on who the owners of vessels are or or the cargo that's being loaded you also have more safety for the crew that's on the ships because there's more accountability at every level also in terms of what other um Adjacent actors like flag states and classification societies can do as part of their vetting, which is again, if their vetting is stronger, more robust, that's going to also help the trade finance community in having an extra uh, assurance in terms of uh, of of, uh, of the trades that they are uh, looking at. So again, I think all of this comes together, but it base uh, it sort of trickles down into
1: transparency
0: at the, at the end of it. That's great. Thanks, Sebastian. Uh, Carl, any any thoughts from you?
1: yeah i think we think about it um you know the big players and everyone's trying to uh to to contribute or or try to mandate things but i mean this all goes to you know the less fraud there is the easier it will be for banks or financial institutions to finance which goes to financial inclusion right if it's right now it's the you know the these bad players are hurting the whole industry and that drop down hurts you know, smaller players that you know could barely get a loan before now they're not going to be able to get a loan, right? Because banks are going to be more prescriptive and 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 tighter on things. So, as as Seb said, I mean, the technology is should be there, right? Everyone pretty much has a smartphone, right? You could get, you know, even a even a you know a small SME. Someone in the company will have a smartphone, right? How do we get some you know, build some of these systems, some of these networks, and interconnect them so that you can feel, banks can feel more comfortable um, getting the right data points. Again, you were saying before about, you know, what is that minimum data set you need to, to, do, to do financing, right? How do we find that data set? How do we find uh, converging data sets, right? So, it's not just from one player, right? So, we can confirm that it's okay for this SME or this S- you know, it's medium enterprise maybe, but these small enterprises, right? How do we make, give the bank the ability to efficiently lend to them, right? And it's going to be all about data.
0: That's great. Uh, Well, thank you everyone for your fantastic insights. I think that's all the time we have for today's episode. Uh, So that was uh, Koshika Ruan of HSBC, uh, Sebastian Villan of Lloyd's List Intelligence, and of course, our very own CEO, Carl Wagner. We will be rolling out more podcasts in the coming weeks, so please check our website for the latest episodes. Uh, The URL is contour.network. Of course, you can also subscribe to us on Apple and Google Podcasts, as well as Spotify. Uh, Thank you all for listening. Until next time, I'm Joshua Quaker signing off.